This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. I'm here with Professor Leon Koopmans from the Capitan Institute for Astronomy at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. So I believe that you did your bachelor's and master's and also your um, uh, your PhD there at Groningen, and you then moved over here to Manchester to do um, where you were a postdoctoral fellow. You've also had postdoctoral positions at Caltech and Baltimore in, in the US, and now you're back at the University of Groningen as a professor. So thank you very much for joining us here today on the Jodcast. You're welcome. So first of all, uh, yesterday here in Manchester, uh, you gave a brilliant colloquium about the 21 centimetre hydrogen line and its application in the study of the cosmic dawn and epoch of reionization. Could you please describe what the 21 centimetre line is for our listeners and how you use it in your research? So the 21 centimetre line is a very rare line that is emitted by neutral hydrogen. So it's a very weak line, but neutral hydrogen in the early universe is everywhere. So even despite it being very weak, it's basically everywhere. So it can add up together to quite a strong line. But despite that, it's still very, very difficult to find. But if we can find it, right, we can actually study the early universe uh, in great detail. So that's sort of the thing that we are we're after. But the 21 centimeter line is, is basically, as the name says, right, a line that's emitted at 21 centimeter. But of course, when we observe it today, it's actually right, stretched up, let's say, because the universe is expanding to several meters in wavelength. But we always call it the 21 centimeter line. So what kind of telescopes do you use to observe this 21 centimeter line? So we're talking in, in the radio regime and so when you stretch the 21 centimeter line out more, then you go to an even lower frequency. So what kind of instruments are you using to observe this line? So you say correctly that we use uh, radio telescopes. The radio telescopes come in many different forms everywhere on, on the Earth. There are radio telescopes, some of them are dishes. But these days we're using what we call aperture rays. So they are sort of flattened out dishes that receive, let's say, the radiation from the universe. It's 21 centimeter radiation. And they are actually electronically stored and then combined in a computer. So what in the past was being done by the, by dish, by combining, let's say, just mechanically the, uh, the signal in what was called the front end. Uh, nowadays, this can all be done electronically. So that makes a telescope much more flexible than a traditional dish telescope. And we need that flexibility to actually find uh, find this signal. So one example is, for example, the LOFAR, the Low Frequency Array in the Netherlands, but it's actually spread around uh, Europe and even the UK has one of the LOFAR stations. We're using that, for example, in our own research. But there are also other sort of types of radio telescopes that are being used around the globe. So when you're looking for this uh, 21 centimetre line, what aspects of it um, are you looking out for with, with these radio telescopes? And what, what kind of science can you get out of studying this line? So we're actually looking both spatially. So we look at how this, at least that's the aim ultimately, to, to look how this, uh, this gas is distributed in the early universe. But we can also, because it is a line, we can tune these radio telescopes at different frequencies. So we can actually look back in time and therefore also in distance. So we can actually build up a three-dimensional view of how this gas is distributed. Now, this gas largely follows what we call dark matter initially. Right? So it is more or less distributed like that. But when the first stars come and the first galaxies form and maybe the first black holes, then the properties of the gas and how it emits this 21 centimeter line changes. 
So by looking at how this gas is distributed and how it changes as function of, let's say, time, evolution in the universe, we can learn about these first stars, about the first black holes, maybe about what we call quasars or supermassive black holes, how the gas is being heated, how there is feedback from these stars, etc. So that's what we ultimately aim to do is to, to learn, of course, about this very early phase, in particular about the first stars and, and black holes that formed uh, about, well, a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. And when you're looking for this signal, how how do you recognize that it is the signal that you're looking for? What kind of characteristic does it have? Well, that, that's a very good question and also a very difficult one because, I mean, detecting this signal is extremely difficult, as I, as I said before, because the galactic foregrounds are extremely large, so this is emission from our own Milky Way. This needs to be removed. Instrumental effects need to be removed. And with current instrument, the signal would still be below the noise. So you then use very specific statistical techniques to extract this from the noise. Now, once you have this uh, signal, you might say, okay, we've detected something, but somebody might say, well, you haven't done your job properly. So how do you actually try to prove that this is correct? So in our case, we look at, at different fields, for example. We say, okay, we look in, in this direction, we look in another direction. And if we don't find a similar statistical signal, then we have to go back to the drawing board and, and think again. Now, you can also compare it, of course, with other instruments that are being used around the world. And, of course, those should also largely agree because we look at areas on the sky which are so large that they should be behaving very similar, whether you're in, let's say, in the northern hemisphere observing or in the southern hemisphere observing, that signal should be more or less uh, uh, similar. Now, this is one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is with techniques which are called cross-correlations. You could, for example, say I have a 21 centimeter signal, but for example, where there are emitting sources, the 21 centimeter, the neutral hydrogen is slowly disappearing. So by what we call cross-correlating observations of these radiating sources with that signal, you should be able to measure that there is some sort of correlation or sometimes anti-correlation between these two signals, which have been ob obtained with completely different techniques. And so there are various ways of, uh, of validating that you actually made a discovery, but it's a very valid uh, question indeed. So you mentioned that there are lots of different um, experiments in, di in different places that, that are doing these kind of studies. Uh, you, you mentioned LOFAR here in Europe. Uh, can you give any other examples um, around the world of these kind of experiments? And you know, are they similar to each other? Are there any differences between them? Yeah, so there, there are many of these experiments. Uh, and the, the nice thing is they're not all doing the same thing. We, are, right? we have never discovered this yet. Right? We're all still in that, in that quest for for discovery and so we also not necessarily know a priori what is the best way of getting to a detection so with lofar we have for example somewhat larger stations and we have a lots of collecting area but because our stations are somewhat larger we also look at a smaller area in the sky so on the one hand that's good on the other hand looking at more of the sky is better but you have finite resources. So if you go, for example, to an experiment which is being done in Western Australia with the MWA, they look at a much larger area in the sky, but with less collecting area. So it's a different 
type of strategy, right? You try one and versus the other. And then there's the really extreme case, of, for example, paper in South Africa, which has the largest field of view, but the smallest collecting area. So there's these sort of different strategies that people try out in different ways of processing the data. And I think that's a good thing uh, to do. So there are actually none of these experiments are, are identical. They're all quite different. And uh, earlier on this year, as, rec- we were re- as we're recording this interview, uh, there was a, a paper published from the EDGES team um, that um, shows apparently a, a detection um, along these lines. Um, could you go into a little bit about what that experiment was doing and um, maybe your thoughts on it as well? So this is actually a very different uh, approach and it's actually measuring something very different from what the so-called aperture rays or radio telescopes interferometers are measuring. So it actually, the telescope that we are using don't measure the, the overall brightness of the, uh, of the 21 centimeter line of neutral hydrogen, but it, the, it measures the fluctuations. So the edges uh, result is actually measuring that what we call global signal. So it measures the total power emitted by this 21, in this 21 centimeter line. And there are predictions that if you look, uh, let's say, back in time, that there's a particular shape to how this, this power, let's say, evolves with redshift and therefore also with cosmic time. And so EDGES has been designing and carrying out their own experiment also for almost a decade. And recently it claimed a detection of this signal. Now, this signal is so-called absorption of the cosmic microwave background in the 21 centimeter line. Now, the amazing thing or the surprising thing there was that this this absorption feature is much, much stronger than any theoretical model has has predicted. It's so strong that you need some sort of uh, more, well, exotic physics or explanations to, to, um, uh, to explain this result, which has led to a lot of of course, very interesting theoretical papers. Um, but there are also maybe still some issues, right, with whether this signal is real, whether we can believe it. And there are parallel, I know, for example, of one experiment currently going on as we as we speak uh, that tries to, um, uh, to confirm or refute this uh, particular detection. But if it's true, it would be extremely spectacular, of course. And uh, so we've got the um, square kilometre array. Hopefully we'll be coming uh, online within the next what, few years. It's obviously currently in development. Um, what will it do for these kind of studies in the future? Yeah, so the square kilometre array is almost 10 times as powerful as, for example, LOFAR. So the square kilometre array, in this case, SKA low, which is the part that's going to be built in Western Australia, is in some sense, very looks very similar to, to, to LOFAR. It has stations which are roughly 30 or 40 meters in size, so it has very similar field of view on the sky, but it's 10 times more sensitive, So and it has many, many more stations as well. So that means that the images it makes are going to be much better in some sense. They, they will have less artifacts, uh, and they will go much deeper. So what you can do with the square kilometer array is no longer do these these detections or measurements statistically, but you can actually make images of the neutral hydrogen. And then in the later phases, this neutral hydrogen, as I mentioned, is being reionized, so you will start seeing bubbles. And you, it becomes like a Swiss cheese. You have bubbles in there that grow slowly over time and eats the entire cheese. 
So with the SKA, you can actually image those bubbles and see that happening as uh, as you go along in time. So I think that will be the most spectacular part of the SKA. Now, of course, we can never predict, right? We have never detected it, so we don't know what we're going to discover, what SKA will discover. But I think the real transformational thing of the SKA is that we can start making those images, whereas until then, we'll have to do with statistical measurements. And what kind of things would you like to see um, in this field over the next few years? And um, what are you going to be involved with yourself personally? Now, first of all, the first thing I would like is detection. A believable detection, maybe Edges has done it but in the global signal, but of course, with these interferometers, I would like to see a detection also of the fluctuations. That would be the first thing uh, I would be happy Right, and then of course the next thing will be quantifying uh, quantifying this this signal in greater detail. As I mentioned, how is it distributed spatially? How does it evolve uh, over cosmic time? Now that that would be fantastic. This is of course what we've been trying to do with LOFAR over the last many many years. But there are many other exciting things uh, on the horizon besides SKA. There are, for example, new experiments being set up. One of them is called Nanofar in France, which is a very, very large collecting area system, but it focuses on the somewhat lower frequency. So it is actually much more sensitive than LOFAR to low frequencies, but it really focuses on that. And then you can go to the so-called Cosmic Dawn era, and it, it will be sensitive enough to do this. Now, there are more sort of other interesting things by going into space, right? In, on the Earth, you have the ionosphere. The ionosphere distorts these signals. By going into space, you avoid uh, these sort of distortions, and you might even dream about observing the so-called dark ages, which is even higher redshift earlier in the universe, but the signal is weaker and the foregrounds are even stronger. So you need a very, very sensitive experiment in space, not being distorted by the ionosphere. So my ultimate dream is, if you say, right, if you would give me a bag of money and build something, I would probably build an array somewhere in space, far away from the Earth or on the backside of the Moon or in orbit around the Moon to do these types of experiments. So if you ask me about my dreams, that is my dream. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that we'll um, get something along those lines in the next few years then. Uh, so moving on to something a little bit different, um, I believe you also do some research into gravitational lensing. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, what exactly, well, I suppose what exactly gravitational lensing is for our listeners that aren't familiar with it and what kind of work that you do in this field? Yes, yeah, so I, I have two research lines. One is, of course, reionization. The other one is, is gravitational lensing. So, and in particular, strong gravitational lensing. So what it means is basically if you take a massive galaxy in, in, in the universe or any massive objects, Einstein has told us that space and time around it are distorted so just like right, my glasses, right, trying to correct distortions in my eyes, right, a massive object causes a distortion of something that is behind it. Now, if the distortion is strong enough, you might be able to see that object twice or four times, and then it's called strong lensing. So in particular, I study these kind of strong lenses on galaxy scales, trying to use these multiply imaged background sources to make statements about what matter there is in these galaxies, in particular dark matter. Right? We know that galaxies from other things like rotation curves and, and galaxy dynamics 
that much of the mass in a galaxy is dark, dark matter, like in the entire universe. But we don't know exactly how it's distributed, how much is there in galaxies, and even more interesting, how it is structured on very small scales. For example, there are theories that predict very dark halos in the halos all around, around uh, massive galaxies, like our own Milky Way, but they're purely dark. There's no gas in them, and hence, how do we... Er how do we see them, right? One, the only way actually of seeing them is via gravity, any particular via gravitational lensing. So a large part of my research is to use gravitational lensing to say something about the dark matter in these galaxies on larger, but also on smaller and smaller scales. And what kind of telescopes are you using to observe these gravitational lenses? Is it still radio telescopes or do you look in other wavelengths? So historically, when I did my PhD, I used radio telescopes because in those days, finding lenses was the easiest with radio telescopes. Um, and I still use radio telescopes, uh, or maybe I should be more precise. My students use them uh, these days, uh, but mostly for follow-up. But most of the lenses actually um, nowadays are found in optical and infrared surveys. That is just because the nature of the surveys in these last 20 years has changed. I think, again, coming back to the square kilometer ray, I think it will turn back to, to radio lenses. Uh, but we use, once we have found these lenses, we're doing, for example, a very large survey now with, uh, with the, v, the VST uh, telescope. We do uh, uh, the KITS survey and finding lenses in there. Then, in general, we try to use any telescope we can get our hands on to do follow-up. So this could be ALMA, this could be uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. Anything that gives us high resolution is good enough for us. Uh, because these lenses in general are very small. They're a couple of arc seconds on the sky. So you need high spatial resolution to make anything, uh, make any useful images from them. So what, what kind of things um, do you hope that gravitational lenses will, will tell us about dark matter? Because it's still something that we don't actually know that much about, right? That's true. So dark matter is, is, is something we call dark matter because, I mean, as the word says, it's dark. We can't, can't see it. It doesn't emit anything. The reason why we, we, we actually know about it is because of gravity. So it has gravity, it's mass. It behaves like other mass in terms of its gravitational field. But what it is, whether it's a particle or maybe something we still don't know about, that's that's a completely open question. So, but there are sort of theories which we call cold dark matter theories, which work extremely well. If we, it's a sort of empirical theory. You say there is a particle out there. It's non-relativistic. Let's see what happens in the universe if we assume that and we let it evolve in our computer simulations. Now, then we can explain what we see on large scales in the universe quite accurately. It works extremely well, but it starts to sort of falter and go wrong on smaller and smaller scales. Now, you can argue this might be because right, you have gas and baryons and stars, and that's all complex, and so we can't disentangle these, uh, these effects. Now, there is one very nice prediction of the so-called cold dark matter theory, and that is that it, as I mentioned before, forms these sort of very small clumps on smaller and smaller scales. Now, this is very hard to get rid of in those, uh, in those theories. This is a very, very clean prediction where lensing can make a very unique uh, uh, statement. If we see those things, cold dark matter, 
is there. If we don't see them, dark matter might still be there, but it's certainly not going to be cold. So one of the questions we're trying to answer is to, to, to measure how many of those small substructures there are, for example, in the halos or along the line of sight to these strong lenses, and then simply compare those numbers with the predictions from these cold dark matter models. If we see them, we can say, okay, the theory works, at least to the mass regime where we're measuring things. If we don't see them, we might have to alter our ideas about what dark matter is. Now, there are alternative theories like warm dark matter, fuzzy dark matter, self-interacting dark matter, etc. And they all predict different levels of this substructure. So this is the first goal, is simply go out, try to measure it, and then compare them to the theoretical prediction. So, so the statement would be about what is the nature of the dark matter. Maybe even more than whether dark matter is there, because there are also, let's say, other observational evidences for, for dark matter that don't come from, from gravitational lensing. And uh, moving on from gravitational lensing, is there anything else that you're involved in at all in, in the astronomical world? Or is there anything else that maybe you're not working in yourself, but you're, you're finding interesting in astronomy at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in a lot of things. Uh, so, and, and the nice thing, and, and I've seen this before, uh, also my colleagues, right? I started off in gravitational lensing and I ended up in also doing reionization. And I've seen this in several of my colleagues from 20 years ago that have taken that same path. The beauty is that it has many commonalities in the techniques that we're using in the mathematical framework. So I'm also very interested in those kind of aspects, right? What is, right? What can you squeeze out of data? For example, we've done a lot of thinking about Bayesian analyses, for example. One thing which I had never even dreamed of becoming knowledgeable about is, for example, the ionosphere. The ionosphere is something that uh, is really bothering us, obviously, in these uh, uh, 21 centimeter experiments, just because we are observing at very low frequencies. So we've written many papers about the ionosphere, and this is certainly something that I became interested in, but never thought I would be interested in. Could, could you actually go into a little bit more detail about how the ionosphere does affect these low-frequency radio observations? So the ionosphere, is it, it's like a, the, the, the sort of comparison you might want to draw is that you're on the bottom of the swimming pool, Right, and you look up and you see, of course, the waves on the on the surface of the swimming pool, and you see right things dancing around and being distorted. Now that's very, very similar to the ionosphere. As you go to lower frequencies, the ionosphere is not a, a nice and smooth layer. It's actually waves that travel around, density waves in the electrons, and as an electromagnetic wave moves through that medium it's actually being distorted, just like light traveling through that swimming pool is distorted the moment it reaches you at the bottom of the swimming pool. And it's not static in time, it's changing constantly. So if you don't make corrections in your data for the ionosphere, you will see radio sources on the sky dancing around, sometimes being broken up in little pieces. So we need to correct for it. We call it calibration for these kinds of uh, effects. So it, it, it's very similar to what the the atmosphere is doing, as I as I said, or a swimming pool. It's it's that that sort of thing. 
And one final question um, that I would have is, how has the, the fields that you've been working in, how have you observed them uh, changing over the time that you've been working in them? You mentioned, I think, uh, you've been working on these things for the past 20 years or mm. so. Um, how, how have they changed while you've been working in them? And where do you see them uh, going in the future in general? Just, you know, radio astronomy in general, or the particular fields that you've been working in? Well, what, what I really see happening in the last few years is that the techniques... Uh, the mathematical, the computational techniques, the modeling techniques have really been pro professionalized. So, whereas in the past we would right, we would we take some some data, we would make a very simple model and do a fit to it, and we would have a publication. But now computers are so strong that you can do very sophisticated things. And I also see that a lot of the techniques that come from what you these days call data science are coming into our field. We're using these very powerful techniques to model our data at a very advanced level. We're doing it statistically much more sophisticated than we used to. So I, I really see that that expansion within astronomy of very, very sophisticated data analysis and data processing techniques, which 20, 25 years ago, I mean, if you go back there, is, is completely different. So even the same sort of data we're taking now compared to 20 years ago would be modeled in a completely different way. And the sort of the the statements you can make based on the same data are much more powerful now than they used to be in the past. So I really see that uh, happening and almost not just in the fields I'm working in, but in every field in astronomy. Hmm. Sounds really interesting. Um, so I think that's all we've got time for at the moment, but uh, thank you very much for joining us here on the Jodcast. You're welcome. And uh, good luck for uh, your research going into the future. Thanks very much.